<laughs> Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or where is this? Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger potion. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> hey, welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another episode of the Weekend Horror Podcast, the only podcast that has binged the entire Witchcraft series and lived to talk about it. Sorry about that, Aaron. And if you, if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, remember we do this live every Wednesday right here on YouTube. So come hang out with us and see all the stuff our editor doesn't want you to see. This week we are covering select horror films released March 12th through March 18th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am JL, and with me tonight is the illustrious Eugene. What's up, everybody? Our very own Spielberg, right here. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> we are trying. We I was like, like uh, I know like, you're trying to do the Spielberg thing, and I'm like trying to be like fucking Aaron Sorkin and shit. And like Johnny's over there trying to do his his Williams thing. So <laughs> his John Williams thing. So. <laughs> mm. The the goal is to be that group uh, in the '80s when it was like George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, and um, oh, who else was it? That they all like hung out together. Oh fuck yeah! <laughs> oh, it, I want to say it was um, like Rob Reiner. I think also. I think probably like Rob were, Reiner was in that group. Yeah. Yeah, they just all hung out and just showed each other's projects and helped each other out and stuff. <laughs> so hopefully one day, one day, let's. See. <laughs> I know Aaron's going to comment on that on that little that little tidbit I just dropped. Oh man! So before we get started, we got some stuff that we want to talk about. Let me go ahead and throw this up there. Bam! There's our amazing patrons who help us to make the show possible. The amazing Patreon banner. Uh, let's see who we've got in the live chat tonight. Let's see. Jay versus here. Good to see Jay versus. Ooh, spooky quiet in here. Well, you were first. You were the first in the chat. It's generally kind of spooky there. We're glad you're here, bud. Angel Rivera as well. Good evening, fellow horror fiends. Good to see you, Angel. Wrote it no last name. Gabba Gabba to you. Says yep. We were over there listening to uh, Jefferson Spatchcock over on his channel. Uh, he's got good funny stuff over there. Good to see you, Roden. Travis Brown is here, another one of one of our amazing supporters. Good to see you, Travis. Is good evening, horror fanatics. Thanks so much for hanging out, Travis. Robert Biter's here. Says, come and come, come on, Johnny O. Have a look at Rock and Roll Nightmare. You may regret it in a good way. Keep up the good work. Cheers from New Zealand. So I'll let I'll pass it on to Johnny because uh, he's not on the show tonight. He is currently on set, I do believe. So he is working um, somewhere else, not here. But uh, hopefully he's having fun. He's probably listening as well. So. Uh, I'll definitely let him know 
about that. Aaron Reyes, there he is. Is hey ho, good to see you, Aaron. And I see, yep, yeah, he's oh yeah, he's been live stream hopping since six thirty. That's what, what you do. That's what you do. Thor Rasmussen's here. Good to see you, Thor. Says good morning, everybody. Good to see you, Thor. And wrote another name. Says I tried being a slash villain, but I didn't make the cut. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> dib dib good to see you uh yes it's true you were not late for once good to see you bud and brian powell good to see you says hello everyone cindy johnson as well says hi good to see you cindy sarcasm says hi kids what do you got tonight kids good to see you bud thanks for saying thanks for hanging out um what was what's that from you remember what that's from oh man oh come on you know it <sighs> and and oh and, and the and the the actor who said it Said it as a character, and the, the character who said it was played by an actor who is currently like all the talk right now. <sighs> what do we see, got tonight, see, kids? See, you, you always put me on the spot like that, and my mind's like blank. Like somehow I forget every single horror movie ever made. <laughs> if Johnny is watching or he's listening, then you know he got it. It's from Beetlejuice. See, there it is. Yeah, such a good movie. What do we got tonight, kids? What do we got tonight, kids? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see here. Uh, Tina Jones is here. Good to see you, Tina Jones. Peekaboo to you. Thanks so much for hanging out. And, uh, oh, Sir Guy says, good and morning should never be spoken in the same sentence. It, it would seem to be an oxymoron. It would. There's no good mornings. Uh, let me see here. Uh, well, oh, every morning you every morning you wake up. That's a good morning, I guess. That's, That's a good true. morning. That's a good morning. Javier Har is here. Says, jello, jello. Good to see you. And thank you, Tina Jones. Yes, please squish that like button, folks. Manipulate that algorithm. I like that. Algorithm. That's nice. I like it. Algorithm. Yeah. Algorithm. Algorithm. I'm stuck on that for a while. Man, bear, pig. Man, bear, pig. It's real. Super ethereal. 50% man. 50% bear. 50% pig. <laughs> Jay versus here. Can see us. This is the appropriate stream to be watching while digitizing old VHS tapes. It absolutely yes. is. And if you haven't had an opportunity, um, I do. I, I didn't even realize it. I just caught it a few uh, a few nights ago. Um, there was a, a a kind of a tribute to old '80s films, an anthology film called Scare. Uh, I think it's called Scare Party, where it's about a dude who runs a VHS uh, a store that you know, like runs VHS stores. And, you know, there's a he's, he's training a new employee about uh, all the you know, the genre stuff, right? So. And it's comedic and it's, you know, it's, it's a horror comedy. It's, you know, gross and, you know, all kinds of wackiness. And it's actually really, really well done. Extremely well done. But I just found out they got a sequel. So if you dig old school VHS style, if you dig like throwbacks to the 70s and 80s, especially in horror, go check out Scare Party 2, which I didn't even realize it got a sequel where it continues the story from the first film. So, big, you know, big, big recommendation there. Uh, let's see. Uh, Sir Kevin says, looking forward to the stream. Best birthday present I've gotten today. Happy birthday to you, Sarcasm. Hope you're doing Happy well. Hope it's, been, hope it's been a good day. H. Jasper is here. Good to see you. This is hard. Good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for hanging out. Tony Regime says, how can you have a film called The Rage without Nick Cage? That's a very good question. A legitimate question. It is. This is and this is at the time of like the height of Nick Cage, too. That's true. This is the height of Nick Cage. Charlie Welch is here. Says, sup, sup. Good to see you, Charlie. Always good to have the man on the, uh, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Good to hang out with you. And oh, Aaron Reese says salt in the wounds. Yep, salt in the wound, assholes, <laughs> for the witchcraft, <laughs> for the witchcraft nonsense. Tony Regine says, Hi, Week in Horror, and Eugene, and appreciate the ghost. Thank you so much, bud. Uh, Charlie Walsh says, Eugenics with no context. I don't know what he means by that. <laughs> it's intense. <laughs> Denova28 says, Hello, you beautiful horror nerds. Good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Another one of our big time supporters. 
And I see Ida Pimp You to Ho says, hello. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Yep, Michael Keaton. He's got it right. Brian Powell had that right. And I think I got it. Algor uh, algorithm holds that. No, Tina, that was an excellent because the way you spelled it was gory. So, and this is a horror show where we talk about horror movies. So, algorithm. I like that where it's gory is in there. Yeah, Algor that was awesome. algorithm. You know, it's just like you put the gore in there. It's great. Let's see. Case Cooper's here. Just popped in. Good to see Case Cooper. Says, well met, JL and Eugene. Thank you, bud, for hanging out. Appreciate it. Algorithm, a minion of Nyarlathep. <laughs> I, I like it, Rodin. I like it. He's the one that handles all the social media. He's, he's, he's Nyarlathep's social media accounts. That's how he get, That's how they get the word out. So through uh, his minion, Algorithm. So very, very nice. I like this. We're, we're world building here. This is good. Yeah. This is really good. <laughs> yes, Tina Jones says, it was absolutely meant. Ha 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 ha. Oh no, it's he 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 I totally meant to do that. I absolutely meant to do that. All right. So before we jump into we have a couple of things that we need to cover before we get to the films that we've chosen tonight, which I will admit are kind of interesting, except for one of them. One of them was not so interesting, but three of them are kind of interesting, you know, going back and looking at them. But the first thing we want to do is because we are we work in the industry both uh both yeah we we do this podcast we're big time film lovers and you know big lovers of the horror genre and of course um uh, we also work in the industry professionally as in numerous fields so we've we've directed we've produced we've written we've acted and it's always a bummer when uh when we here at week in horror we have to move somebody one of our you know one of the beloved actors character actors or anybody who's been involved in the industry for a long time, when we have to move someone to the in memoriam. And it was uh, a shame when we found out that um, we had to say goodbye to Tom Sizemore. And he recently, unfortunately, apparently had a brain aneurysm and unfortunately did not recover. And his family decided to uh, withdraw um, care because there was no chance he was going to recover, which is a damn shame. But um, we have an, his amazing filmography to remember him by and all of the works that he had done. I went back, you know, kind of like to remember some of the stuff that I remember him in, obviously, you know, Saving Private Ryan and a number of massive films. You know, he was in Natural Born Killers. He worked with virtually everybody in Hollywood at one point or another and did some fantastic work. Um, one of the kind of quintessential tough guys, you know, uh, since his career started, you know, going back all the way to the beginning. Um, do you have any favorites that you remember him from? Any favorite performances? Uh, one of my favorites is Heat. Um, oh, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. yes. He he is such a good movie, um, and other movies are about like Black Hawk Down, uh, another fantastic movie, and the th the thing the thing about him because I know he battled uh, a lot of demons throughout, right, and still able to come in and have solid performances because I don't remember a performance that was like half assed Never. in any way. Like he was somebody he was good, and I appreciate all the performances that we were able to get out of him yeah um just an incredible actor um just i mean somebody who is just he's just incredible career from what i understand you know as far as he's just one of the great character actors that we've seen forever that we'd seen forever and had a long career and the and it was in that the but from anybody i'd ever run into who had ever had the the grand opportunity of working for him of working with him what that, that they had nothing but glowing things to say about him that he was a consummate professional he always knew his stuff he was always on point 
there was never one of these situations where he was problematic with directors or problematic with other actors. He didn't cause ruckuses. He came in, he did his job, he was professional, and then he carried around his day. He did have his own personal demons with addiction and a number of other things that he was dealing with, but he tried to deal with them and he put forth his best efforts. And I think there, unfortunately, there were a lot of negative influences that were around him that kind of kept dragging him back into that, unfortunately. But he left it on the field and he came in and he did his job and he delivered us some fantastic, just great character roles. You know, really, because the guy had, for, for all of his tough guy persona, the dude had charisma and he had chemistry with virtually every person I saw him work with. He, he could relate to anybody and he was brilliant in ensemble casts. When he, when he didn't have the weight of trying to carry the entire production, like like lead Tom Sizemore, when he could work with a group of, of actors, he he played. And just like one of the, like I said, I always go back to Saving Private Ryan because mm-hmm. him and Tom Hanks, even though it's Tom Hanks and everybody has has chemistry with Tom Hanks because it's just Tom Hanks, you know, but the the ability for him to to for, to bring that out and show and showcase what he's capable of is just amazing. And so I really, really enjoyed just I, it was just a bummer hearing about it. I wanted, you know, I went back, and started looking at some of the stuff and Denova brings up. I loved him in Dreamcatcher. And it was such mm-hmm. a simple role, you know, that's what you know, but he brings a nuance to it. He had that energy. And I just I, you know, and of course, it, it, he kind of blew my mind with natural born killers when he was Scagnetti. And not only his his work with Tommy Lee Jones, but his work with Juliette Lewis. And so there's just he's so intense and it was it's just a damn shame that we lost him and i know that his career was kind of moving in a direction where he was he was getting roles where he's pretty much guy on cover with gun you know that kind of thing which is sometimes where it goes but at least he was working up until he's got i think he's got four movies that are coming out posthumously i mean the fact is at least he was at least he was working and on top of, yeah, there are some like straight to DVD or straight to streaming kind of videos out there. I mean, that's that's fine. It, actors still have to make money. Right. But when you have some of these iconic movies that he's also been part of, because you mentioned Saving Private Ryan, and the thing with the chemistry with him and Tom Hanks is it was 100% believable that you can tell the two of those characters have been through so much have before been that movie through the shit. starts. <laughs> that, yeah, that they fought shit. in Africa. <laughs> They fought in Italy and, and that they had that personal connection, despite rank differences, they had that personal right. connection. And then transitioning to like the beauty, the beauty execution of heat, especially that final gunfight um, yeah. in the in the parking lot and just the pure execution behind that. Just right. I mean, just yeah. So, uh, so Casey Cooper brings up the relic, and he—I thought he was great in the relic as just like the cop that just like what the fuck is like what is this bullshit? Just the the, the kind of like hard boiled the hard boiled noir detective who has you know his own little foibles, but just kind of deals with shit as it comes along. It's like I'm not a scientist, I'm not I don't do paranormal, I just fucking deal with shit, you know. And I love the way he brought that the everyman kind of mentality to things. Um, Denova brings up Harley Davidson, the Marlboro Man, as well. And of course, yeah, plot hole brings up Tom Sizemore was a terrific actor. He lost himself in his roles. And then, of course, um, and uh, well, someone brought that up, but Brody Nelson said that hotel, the hotel room fight in True Romance. I'm pretty sure that was James Gandolfini that threw down with Patricia Arquette in the hotel room, right? Wasn't that Gandolfini? Uh, I would have to double check. Because I know that Sizemore was in it. He played one of the detectives. He played just one of the cops. 
Um, but I'm fairly certain that that was hey plot hole. Um, I'm fairly certain that was James Gamble because that throwdown between Patricia Arquette in the when he goes into the bathroom and he slams her in the tub and she starts laughing his ass laughing at him because he looks ridiculous because his hair is all fucked up and his face is all messed up. And so I think that that brawl was between was between her and James Gandolfini. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think Correct you're right. Wrong. Yeah, we do have a, uh, we do uh, have Casey Cooper who brought up Red Planet. Yes. Oh, him and uh, was and that Carrie fucking Moss. Um, Carrie Moss and was it? Uh, oh, fucking not Gary Sinise. Was it? Oh, uh, Val Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. That was it. Val Kilmer. Yeah. Oh man, he worked with everybody. He was fantastic. Nope. You know. Such a damn shit. But we have a massive, a massive filmography to remember him by. And uh, I'm glad that they, that he got to do as much as he did. And it's a shame. I, I you know, I actually, and this is kind of a, I almost got an opportunity to work with him once. Um, I unfortunately did not. The film did not go through. Uh, but it was a film that I auditioned for uh, years ago. This was years ago. Like, I think it's 2004. And it was a war film that uh, I auditioned for down in Austin. So it was wild because I was working and I got the word and I was like, ah, so I had to drive down to Austin. So literally I had to drive down to Austin to go audition. And then I had to rush back to Dallas to go to work. And then I got the call back the next day and I had to rush back down to Austin to go to the call back and then rush back up to Dallas to go to work. It was freaking exhausting. And unfortunately they, um, uh, that film didn't go through it. Funding dropped out and the film never got made, but I was that close. Well, it's oh. that close to Pondu to the opportunity, but it happens all the time. You know, movies get popped up and then they they fall. But that would have been so fucking cool. But that yeah, it's cool. A, that would have been sweet. But yeah, it's a, it's a shame. But um, oh, Aaron Reese says he was disturbingly good in striking distance. I, it might be the first thing I remember him from. Awesome. So many good roles. Let us know in the comments, you know, remembering uh, remembering Tom Sizemore. Um, a fantastic character actor. So many great roles. Let us know down in the comments what your favorite tom sizemore role was or if there's a movie you're going to go back and you're going to watch uh just kind of remember you know his work put it down in the comments below your favorite films or the films that you watch to kind of remember uh would love to hear what y'all think about that so rest in peace tom sizemore uh we have your filmography to remember you by so thank you all right i think uh tesla bitten radio is here good to see you tesla bitten radio thanks for coming in appreciate it and I see uh, a plot hole. Yep. And then, of course, just call me Avi's here. Spoof, I appear. Good to see you, Avi. Thanks so much for hanging out, bud. And I think I... Oh, and Daryl M. Good to see you, Daryl M. I knew there was somebody else in there. Good to see you, Daryl M. And somebody mentioned Saving Private Ryan. Oh, Ryan Powell said, I remember watching Saving Private Ryan with my grandfather. It was hard for him to get through because of his PTSD. It was, that was a brutal film. Yeah, it, it really was. And easily the most realistic depiction of world war ii to the point where the uh va had to set up a hotline for world war ii veterans to call while watching that movie that's um, intense because it just it brought back so many flashbacks um one person was talking about they watched it with grandfather and his grandfather started to smell diesel um wow just getting flashbacks back on it but it's it's also the type of film that it needed to be made to showcase what the the veterans went through right as it says spielberg you know spielberg yeah oh man historical piece spielberg (laughs) 
Spielberg. Denova 28 says point break was a small role of his. I like there's so many. Yeah, like I said, his filmography is is long and very distinguished given the number of the incredible individuals, you know, both behind and in front of the camera that he worked with. So there's there's you know, not a not a person out there who didn't you know didn't work with him. So much, so much great stuff. Okay, so uh definitely let us know down in the comments. And last thing we need to do is we need to do the bloodbath coin toss. Yes. Yes. So the bloodbath coin toss for this month is between because Angela won. Angela won her debate last uh, the last bloodbath debate. So anybody who uh, has early access to the Patreon, you can hear that bloodbath debate, and you can hear Angela uh, pick up that win when she took. You on... can't spoil it for people. Well, it's still Angela. I just said that. it was Angela. Welcome. But you know, no, I mean, that, yeah, that's but our... people are like, I'm. Oh, okay. Well, she, she yeah, took on Alex. Yeah, you can't spoil it. She took on Alex. Okay, and well, she. It, I just said she's. It's between her and somebody else. As a matter of fact, I think it's between her and Johnny. Or no, it's her between her and me, isn't it? Is it her and me uh, or me and her? I think it is her and you. I think. It, I think she's taking. She, I think it's between me and her. All right. So yeah, this bloodbath debate uh, between Angela and I. So my wife is is uh, going to debate me, and it's going to be between, and I can't believe I, I came up with this because it seems so perfect. Uh, I came up with this. It was between Job from Lawnmower Man and Horace Pinker from, from Wes Craven's Shocker. So the ability to be electrical <laughs> jump through shit. It's going to be fucking insane. This is, this is nuts. And it just it kind of occurred to me. I was like, why can't we do this? So fuck yes. So we're going to do this. Um, because you're here and Angela's given me proxy, I'm going to flip the coin and you actually, I'm here. No, I, sh I shouldn't do it. Should I, I is that bias? If I do that, do you want to oh. flip the coin? You, you, you don't have a, an official coin, but you have a coin, right? You should have... flip the coin. I was like, I did not come. Oh wait, I have a, okay. I do have a coin. I have a regular coin though. Oh, wait a sec. No plot hole says it's Johnny V. Angela. Okay, okay, then it's Johnny. All right, then it's Johnny then. There's Johnny versus Angela. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then I can't call it. Okay, okay. So yeah. I have the official coin toss. So uh because Angela won the last one, and if you want if I mean I don't doesn't necessarily mean you agree with our decisions, but the judges decided she won. Um we're gonna flip the coin and I will take Angela's proxy and I will call it heads. And it is heads. So Angela will make the choice. As to which one she's gonna fight, as was to uh, which villain she will take, and Johnny will pick up the leftover, and then of course uh, we will do that towards the end of the month. And our uh, patrons, our uh, uh, the uh, patrons who have the uh, tier access, will be able to join us as special guest judges to help us determine who will win in the next bloodbath debate. Wait, wait. So, so you're since it is gonna be Johnny, you're gonna make Johnny defend or argue Lawnmower Man. Uh, it's whoever, whoever, I haven't said who Angela is chosen, so what do you want? What do you want? You're not working. Truth and well, no, the shoot got, uh, got pushed to uh, next week. But I wanted to make sure you got it correct, because it's actually Angela and myself, but I see that you already fixed that. Yeah. And two, I shared with everybody a very important photo via uh, Messenger. Stop sending dick pics out to the fans. Okay, look, here's the thing. It's not mine. It's Eugene's. 
<laughs> Why are you taking dick pics of Eugene? <laughs> I'm not. Eugene is. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So no, Eugene no, no. is taking no, no, dick no, no. pics and sending them to you, and then you're putting them on the internet? No, no, no. You don't understand. What kind of business am I running here? <laughs> no, it's it's so much worse than that, JL. You don't understand. Like, you think this is a joke, but I'm being dead fucking serious right now. You have got to check the message. You've got to check the message that I just sent you. Okay, hang on a sec. So, why did I agree to have my... What the fuck, man? <laughs> my daughter redraw the storyboards. That's the... When you have your daughter redraw the storyboards... That's what's funny. Do you want me to show this? Uh, it's dangerous, but you go right ahead so people have some context. Okay, okay, so, okay. first of all... Okay, no, 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 Eugene, you don't get to qualify this. You don't get to qualify this. <laughs> I was going to give okay. them some backstory. They don't so, need backstory. They just need to see so the picture. Johnny, so Johnny gave it to... Actually, you know what? I could... No, no, that would be... That would take too much time. To post it on Discord, I'll, I could probably do it later. Johnny can, Johnny can do it later. But he sent me sent us a picture and said, why did I agree to have my daughter? How old is your daughter? Uh, she's 13. 13, okay. Why did I? Anyway, Again, did I, I didn't know. I didn't know <laughs> this picture was in the storyboards because I wasn't paying close enough attention to this gentleman here as he was drawing the originals. Okay, I told so you I'm a bad artist. Why did I agree to have my daughter redraw the storyboards? Here is an example. <laughs> <laughs> that is the storyboard that was created for his movie or the film that he's working on so i'm pretty sure everybody saw that uh what is before okay before we get to our stuff what is what is the context of that does it matter does it matter sort of okay so here's the only context that matters this is not a prawn movie okay <laughs> That's the only context that matters. This is not an adult film. Oh. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the scene. <laughs> it took me a second. It took me a second to remember what's going on there. I had to look at the other the other frames to figure out what the hell was was that was supposed to be. That's supposed to be somebody's arm reaching in through a door. <gasps> oh, I see really? it now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, really. Yeah, because Denova twenty says Denova twenty eight says it's either a cactus or a dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the two. Uh, Travis Brown says that is an electric that is an electric pole with a dildo. That's exactly what that is. For Casper would like to say excellent minimalism, and then of course just call me out. He says brilliant. That is Spielberg quality right there. And Angel Rivera says, Eugene, why does it have an elbow? <laughs> Aaron Reese says, why does that telephone pole have a penis? <laughs> and Tony Regime says, weak in horror, you're going to need a bigger screen if it's Eugene's. That's, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, it's not a prawn movie. Well, it is now. <laughs> and Tia Jones says, arm? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, good to see you. NANA, thanks so much for being here. Peter Noddle as well. Good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out. And fucking, oh, uh, and Just Call Me Obviously says, damn, those prawns. Yeah. <laughs> those prawns. So uh, she brought me this. <laughs> she brought me this page. Yeah, right. 
she brought me this page, the, the page that I sent, right? This page here. And she right. said, Daddy, what is this? I said, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to look at the other, I had to look at the other squares. I'm like, that's an arm reaching through a door. That's what that is. It's an arm reaching through a door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. you have the door, and he has his arm coming. He has his arm coming like that, and he's trying to like, <laughs> like that. Oh, rock hard. I mean, what? Um, <laughs> hey, uh, Nemo eight thirteen. Good to see you. And he's coming about strange days. Yeah, Casey Cooper wonders if there's something Freudian here, Eugene. And H. Jasper he says, "Is it another man's hand?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, Denova. Eugene is a tripod. He absolutely. <laughs> is and uh, mr malord good to see you all the way from chicago good to see you bud thanks for hanging out oh man that's okay that's wild but yes it is uh the bloodbath debate will be between johnny and uh, johnny and angela you can't it's save this yes i can two <laughs> minutes before we have to get to the next uh, get to the first film so the bloodbath debate despite our little segue into the hazards of letting eugene you know, draw Letting Eugene draw, and then other people try to interpret his drawings. Um, so, do you guys remember that movie Super Bad? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's Jonah Hill. <laughs> so uh, the 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 fucking bloodbath debate will be between Johnny and Angela. Angela won the coin toss. She will decide who she wants to take between Job and Horace Pinker, and or Job and Shocker. And, of course, uh, that will be the, towards the end of the month. Our patrons have the opportunity to be special guest judges for that to help us decide who wins. So go and check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash weekendhorror. And if you join our Patreon, you can join us and hang out behind the scenes and enjoy our bloodbath debates and our After Dark sessions, win gear and swag from the store, all kinds of cool stuff. So And Eugene's penis drawing. What? And Eugene's penis drawings. Absolutely. I asked if y'all could draw. Y'all said no. I was like, well, I can't draw, but I'll do it anyway because someone has I can't to. draw, but I can sure draw dicks. I can draw dicks. <laughs> I know what I know what this looks like. <laughs> it looks so veiny. It looks so veiny. And the thing is, like, there are the things coming out of the tip of the of the hand there. I guess those are supposed to be those are supposed to be fingers, but that definitely doesn't look like fingers coming out of a hand. It looks like sploosh coming out of no, the tip. No, it doesn't. That is, that is lightning. That is lightning coming out of the tip because that's what Eugene experiences. Zeus <laughs> 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 is Thunderbolt. Jeez. <laughs> uh, Boy, do I feel sorry for your girlfriend. Uh, Rodanella's name says, now that art needs to be on a mug. <laughs> It absolutely does. Now I have to go through all these again to make sure there are no more accidental dicks. Uh, just call me. Avi says, not safe for work storyboards. <laughs> and Sarcasm says, Angela, please edit this segment. No, Angela, make this segment its own thing. We 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 put the explicit banner on every episode of Week in Horror because things like this happen. So It, it does happen. <laughs> All right, you guys have a good show. Uh, Eugene, stop drawing dicks. <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> uh, Javier Hara says, We can hor it's a Picasso. 
<laughs> Maybe when he was like three. Um, let me see. Sarcasm says clipped. Sarcasm has clipped something from the show. And Brian Powell says, I'm reduced to a mass on the floor laughing and crying. It's a peen casso. It's absolutely a peen casso. It's what it is. Fucking hell. You always you can always count on Johnny O to come into the show just when he's not scheduled to be here, just to pop into the show and and things just go fucking haywire. Uh, but he makes it fun. You know, he actually he <laughs> just fucking cry. I don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, just call me. I just call me. I didn't see it. <laughs> just call me. Always says, "Come for the horror, stay for the dicks." <laughs> and Casey Cooper says, "Finger guy, yeah, finger guns." Johnny, Aaron Reese says, "Spot the dick with weak and horror." <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> penis, penis, this penis over there. What are we looking at? Eugene's latest storyboarding. Every frame. Just every wangs. frame. Every frame. Just wangs. every frame. Just. <laughs> This is supposed to be an establishing shot of a building. And there's a wang with wangs. <laughs> no, those are the pillars outside the building. Oh, fuck. Oh, man. Paging, yes, paging Dr. Freud. Absolutely dickbag patrol. Good to see you. Thanks so much for hanging out, bud. All right, man. Oh, just, just call me. I'll be on the set with jail. Dicks, dicks everywhere. <laughs> just <penises. laughs> Eugene's X-rated storyboards. <laughs> I'm very thorough with my work. Yes, Johnny O just drop. Thank you, Rodent. Rodent last name. Johnny O just dropping dicks and run. Yep, he does that. That's what he does. I think he has four kids. I'm <laughs> 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 sorry. I'm just fucking with him. I know he probably heard that. But anyway, oh, fucking hell. So we've got some movies to talk about tonight, some interesting ones uh, to chat about. Um, so let's dive into it. Uh, uh, Eugene. What do we have first? All right. The first one, because there's just no great way to segue into this. The first movie we have is The Rage, Carrie 2, released March 12, 1999. Roll it. All right. All right. So you have The Rage, Carrie 2, directed by Kat Shia, starring... Emily Burgey, Jason London, Dylan Bruno, Jay Smith Cameron, and Amy Ivron, with also an appearance of Mira Savina. And basically, what it basically what the premise is is you have a girl who also has similar powers like Carrie, who witnesses her best friend's suicide, and then she kind of falls in love with a football player, and then some stuff happens, and shit gets real. <laughs> It does get kind of real there towards it, the end. It does, it does get real. <laughs> it's it okay. So this was weird. I remember seeing this when it came back when it came out back. I think I probably watched this in ninety nine when it came out, or probably two thousand. Um, likely, I think it was ninety nine. Like later in ninety nine is when I watched this because obviously you know being attached to the Carrie franchise, and even though the 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 connection I think felt kind of shoehorned because um, they just kind of like added in the the connection via like the dad like there's the possibility that you have know, that her father was the unknown father of carrie white's uh of you know, un- carrie father's carrie white's unknown father from the movie carrie from the story carrie was potentially the father of rachel in this particular uh this particular yeah, that he's like a carrier of the gene yeah the carrier of this it. gene yeah. which is which is which is weird because um this, this that was the one thing the one big thing on this one is because there i don't really understand why the sequel was made Obviously, you could have made it for. I mean, they made it for you know cash reasons because they're cashing in on the name. It's like, oh, it's a sequel to Carrie. You know, carries you know it carries on the story of you know, the legacy or whatever. But 
it was kind of pointless in that respect. Now, this came out at a time when uh, high school movies, or I'd say 90s high school, because of the the angst of the 90s generation, was kind of inspiring. So you got movies like, you know, The Faculty, you've got movies like Scream, you've got, you've got Scream in 96, you've got The Faculty, I think, <clears throat> which came out in 98, and then you've got um, Disturbing Behavior, which I think came out in 97. And so... This kind of '90s, I you know, idea of what uh, high school is, where it's it's clickish, it's full of just hormones, and people just want to fuck and fight and do all this other crazy shit. And so they juxtapose this the Carrie storyline against that, uh, where unlike the original one with Sissy Spacek, directed by Brian De Palma, was juxtaposed very similar to Christine, where you had high school was not this kind of like meat grinder that kids have to go through. Whereas this one took the kind of 90s appeal to that and just transposed the Carrie storyline over to it. But the problem that I saw was, unlike movies like Disturbing Behavior or The Faculty or Scream, where they use that and where they use the kind of high school backdrop as just a backdrop to the, to the narrative, this one informs the narrative differently than it did the previous one, which kind of reduced the impact and believability because we, we went through high school and it may seem like that from an emotional perspective, but it wasn't like that. Unlike in the original Carrie with Sissy Spacek, that was very believable. There was a believable grittiness <laughs> to that as far as the social dynamics. This one, not so much because it's this, uh, what's the uh, exaggeration of what high school was like in the It 90s. leaned in. So it basically, it really leaned in over the top. And I'm really kind of curious to see in terms of filming wise, because this came out the same year as American Pie, which I want to say American Pie maybe came out a month after this one came out. And I'm kind of curious to see which one was filmed first, because American Pie really leans into that over the top high school party. Also other right. movies like say, Can't Hardly Wait, which came out yeah. around that same time period. She's all that and stuff like that. So yeah. Obviously, yeah, she's all bad. So they're obviously leaning really hard. It's the topic is really hot right now. So they're just that part's going to be pure cash value. But I think I agree with you the fact that it takes it takes away because the original carry is focused on her. It's not so much the world of high school and then Carrie's in it. No, no we're at Carrie because we follow Carrie's home life. It's all from her perspective. Whereas this is like it's more you have high school this is what high school people are doing and then you kind of drop her in the middle so it loses its impact there was um the the i will give him this uh so i will get i will give him this that originally titled the curse the film centered the film was originally uh, intended i think it borrowed from an actual event that occurred in 1993 about a group of high school jocks that were involved in a a publicized a, a what turned into a massively publicized sex scandal a group of jocks known as the spur posse and so they were originally that was the intention was the curse and it was going to be about these groups of jocks that are involved in this sex scandal and then one of the girls a, a kind of a revenge that a revenge uh, th uh thriller is what kind of what i think where it was or a revenge horror film very similar to like straw dogs or last house on the left or you know a, a spit on your grave and shit like that i kind of would have dug that idea without even with the supernatural aspect if the girl turns out to be like a telekinetic that's cool we can have a telekinetic chick fight against this stuff fight against you know the the people that fought you know the people that hurt her or hurt her friends i dig that i did that would have been an interesting way to go and that's why i think shoehorning in the carrie thing because it came in after the fact adding the whole connection to carrie and convincing amy irving who was in the original film to return for this one to give it that to lend it that credibility did more disservice 
to it than possible because now we have an expectation. Now we have King's work that we need to build on top of, and it just couldn't. That's that's literally lightning in a bottle. It's, it's almost impossible, lightning in a bottle. To It's almost impossible to capture that again, to capture what De Palma did. And so it, it seemed like it was just, eh, let's do this, and we want to make sure that it makes money, so let's attach you know the carry trope, well, the the carry name to it, and put in the little footage from the original film, cut that into it, and Sissy Spacek gave the permission to use her likeness, so she they said, "Sure, go ahead and use it for the movie," and that was pretty much uh, now, it. They, now there there was a caveat to that; they put it in the movie first and then got her permission. So oh, they, okay. So the director Kate, yeah, Kate really took a gamble that uh, uh, Casey Spacek will be okay with that. Oh, lucky, luckily, so, uh, yes. And, and then, yeah, they, I mean, they gave the permission and it just it worked out on it. But I, I agree because the whole second plot line of well, we're going to go and track down her mother and everything with Amy Irving, it felt just, it felt shoehorned. It felt out of place. It didn't meld with a story that, that if they just left it, where it was more of a revenge story mm-hmm. and something very specific. You don't need the whole flaming crescendo that the first carry has. Right. Because you're, first of all, you're just not going to beat the first carry in that regard. But if you did maybe an ice bit on your grave where it's a personal revenge where she goes to their house afterwards, makes it personal, still uses telekinetic powers, and then just drop the whole the whole subplot that we just don't need. Right. See, this is intriguing. So, like, if they had done, if they really wanted to get, and Rodan Ellison brings up, because he's, Rodan is very, very familiar with the King universe. If they had done something interesting, like, now, if her dad turned out to be an employee of the shop, or maybe someone who was a part of the experiments that created the psychics and Firestarter, and he is the one, you know, said, you know, having kids out there that turn out to be telekinetics, that would, that would, add, that would be some lore to build off of, but they did, they, they didn't go that far. And it's, that's where they lose the plot of this. Now, originally in the original carry from King's perspective, the concept is that her, what they, what King leaves ambiguous is that Carrie's mother had sex with the devil and that Carrie, she attributes, she gets her supernatural powers from a demonic source, but that's never confirmed. And it's never confirmed because her mother is stark raving fucking mad. So her mother is a, an insane religious fanatic. And is trying to control her daughter, but there is ambiguity as to who her father is because her mother will never name him, and we never get any hints to it. But we do know that Carrie has powers, and they are, and they get, they increase as she is uh, increasing in her kind of like sexual awareness. So there's this huge, especially after after uh, she gets her period. That that was the big thing. As she as she comes into her own, her powers come into it very similar X Men style. They hit puberty, and then the powers manifest. Mm-hmm. The same thing. Uh, Unfortunately, that cool little tidbit that could have been played upon to give the religious undertones a bit of strength to them was not brought over to this one. Just that, oh, it was the dad. So we're kind of lifting off of the X-Men idea that, you know, genetic, that these kind of powers are passed on the father's side. And they lose the plot on that because the whole point of it being was that, is this what happened? There's a universe that King built there that Brian De Palma utilized extraordinarily well but with... um. Uh, carry it with a uh, sissy SpaceX performance and uh, oh, I'm going to kick myself for forgetting her name. And I'm going to, it's going to piss me off. Um, fucking Piper Laurie and Piper Laurie, who was fucking magnificent in that role as her mother. So cause I remember Piper from, uh, from Twin Peaks. 
So in that, who also happened to be in the faculty. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> so given that, they lost the plot. And they could have done something strong. But I don't think they had the stones or they didn't have the creativity to do it. Or maybe it was too obscure and people, you know, the, it was too much of a risk. So you go with what works. You follow the formula that everybody else is using. And it unfortunately takes what could have been a solid opportunity and just, you know, dumbs it down, makes it formulaic. So it could just be out there. Oh, it's connected to this. And then it gives them the the disturbing behavior faculty treatments that everybody was anticipating from anything depicting high school in the 90s. Now, one thing that was really interesting is so the director, Kat Shia, she was only brought in a week before production started. Okay, so, that's so she wasn't even involved in the, okay, not even involved in the plan. Yeah, she I, didn't I, pick, I, she didn't cast, she didn't pick the locations, she didn't do any of that. They originally had a director, the director dropped out just for whatever reason. So huh. she was literally brought on. And we're like, cool, all right, we're shooting Friday, let's go. So she didn't even really have the time to go in and try to make it her own or even try to take risks because she may not have even known the story well enough to take risks. See, that's interesting because Cat Shea is uh, – the movie, a movie that she directed before this was Poison Ivy. And Cat Shea worked extensively with, with Drew Barrymore. And that was when Drew Barrymore was kind of coming into her own and trying to break away from the, from the child actress – uh, so she took stuff like like Doppelganger, and she took uh, uh, Poison Ivy. The, the, the very similar to other uh, young actors time who were trying to break out of their child roles, go into more adult roles, like Alicia Silverstone, which she did with The Crush and Carrie Elwes. Uh, Drew Barrymore did that with uh, Poison Ivy, and trying to break into that new area, break into that new territory. And so she directed that, which makes a lot of sense. If she didn't have a lot of planning time going into the film as far as pre-production goes, she was brought in a week before, you know, principal photography began. I there, Cause there's a lot of similarities in both the cinematography and in the framing of things that you can see there are parallels. Like, so she drew on what she knew from poison Ivy to depict the female experience, the female protagonist experience in this film. So you could look at, you could look at those two side by side and be like, she copied a lot. Because she had this experience and not a lot of prep time. So just go with what you know. Shoot this fucking thing like you shot Poison Ivy. And at least you'll know you've done it fairly well. Because that movie looked really, really good to just shoot it the exact same way. So there wasn't anything new kind of brought to it, which was a shame. Um, it was. I, I honestly think, it's not, it was surprisingly, it was not that bad. I, I look back on this. I rewatched this. It was like, it's not as bad as I remember it being. Which is it odd. And so the cinematography got me on a lot of stuff. Um, the black and white grainy camcorder kind of feel. That was that weird. Kinda, yeah. yeah. that It just kind of come out of nowhere. And then it'll give all this kind of like this like fancy effects and like this weird kind of like aspect uh, ratio things. And just it, it went way over the top 90s. Like it's fine getting like some night a couple of '90s tropes in there that you can make a movie feel like '90s. For example, like Clueless, but this movie did not age well. No, no, it didn't at all. As a matter of fact, when I first saw the the movie feels when I first saw the first black and white thing, I was like, "Who who the what does she think she's fucking Oliver Stone?" I was like, "What the shit is this?" Exactly. I'm thinking natural. Natural born killers. It was like it was like the only person who does it is fucking Oliver Stone. Switch to black and white, then switch back to color. It was like, oh, I get why he did that. This is very artistic, Mister Stone. No, because there's no. But that was the problem with it from from a from an artistic standpoint or a or cinematography standpoint. It just it just flips, and we have to we have to watch it a couple times to figure out. Oh, 
they're showing the culmination of her powers and the use of the powers in black and white, where her power, that's the indicator as to when her power is taking over. There's nothing else in the scene to indicate that. In fact, it didn't even need to be in black and white. Just show shit moving on its own. You would have successfully done it. You didn't need... You didn't need the, I'm going to be artistry, artistic. And I'll be like, oh, it's black and white. Oh, it's different. It was like, it was completely unnecessary. And it literally threw me off the first time. I was like, why the fuck are we in black and white all of a sudden? This is beyond. (laughs) So, yeah, it was just unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it it wasn't. um, Like, so there are just some other effects that they kind of threw on that it was just like, okay, that's, it's not. It, it, it hits this like kind of middle ground because it's like it's this artistic point that you don't understand where it comes from because the first time you see it, I'm like, oh, is there another character watching what's going on, or is right. this like another POV or something? Because it's, and then it's perspective, like, right? Yeah, and then it's just like, nope, it's just it's just usage of powers, like that's it. And yeah. it, uh huh. And so it, it get to the point where it's like. I wasn't really a fan of that. I wasn't really a fan of some of the other effects. The regular stuff was shot fine. It was like standard, just standard, uh, just run-of-the-mill cinematography. Mm-hmm. But just some of those special things I think she threw on, maybe to, just to try to change it, or maybe at the very last minute she's trying to make it her own. Possibly. Or, or that also could be studio interference. Like, you know, when they're looking at it, they're doing the, they're looking at it for as far as final cut goes, like we need something more to indicate what's going on. As far as the powers go to seven, this is when she's using her powers. This is when she's not, it needs to be a bigger thing so that people know what to expect. And then they do that. And of course my, my gut instinct is that if they were doing that and they chose to do that, the idea might be that, one thing, one of one of the reasons why people would you could switch the way you would make a choice to switch to black and white. It's also the same as like shooting a horror film really really dark. Is like you can lower the lighting and shoot things really really dark and play and play with light that way. If your monster looks bad or your practical effects are terrible in full light, then you just darken everything. That way you don't have to worry about people seeing the shit and their imaginations will take care of it. But the problem is in a movie like this, you need to be able to shit see shit all over the place. So one tactic you could have is making them black and white so that all of your supernatural effects that aren't just like things on fire or like this, but the actual like telekinetic stuff, all of that can be that you can obscure because you might see things in detail and color, but in black and white, you may lose it. Or in monochrome, you may lose that. You may lose that de- that level of definition and there's, oh, okay. So essentially it could have been a cover-up is a possibility. It'd be like, there's people looking at this in color and going, oh, that looks terrible. It's like, no, we need to do something well, see, about that. that. We can't reshoot that means, it. We don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> that means special effects. They need to up their game. That's what it means. Right. If it's like, a, oh, man, we got to go black and white to cover up that cup, that mug moving, or a window opening and closing. No, no. Special effects, step up your game. Yeah. And so either way, I'm not saying that's what they did. I'm saying that that is sometimes a tactic that is utilized by lower budget films. But in that, you know, in that, oh, right now, you could have slowly drained the color when she uses powers as an indicator, but subtle would be better. Absolutely. Subtle would be better. Not this hard cut to black and white, you know, and like this Oliver Stone, like hard cut to black and white to offer a Essentially, he does that to offer the audience's perspective, to look at it from a different angle and then come back into it. And he does that brilliantly because he uses it sparingly. He uses it when necessary as part of the narrative. He doesn't just overuse it over and again, again, where it then loses its uh, loses its appeal, loses its oomph. 
But yeah, ultimately, while not as terrible as I initially thought, it wasn't. I was like initially, I was like, oh god, this game, this movie's gonna suck. It wasn't bad. The performances were okay. I thought that there was some stuff was telegraphed. You could see it coming a mile away. <clears throat> I thought the they they kind of stuck the landing. It could have been a little bit better, a little bit more investment there. Um, but otherwise, it was kind of just a weird throwback. It was like, huh, a lot of a lot of very off kilter. You know, I see what they were trying to do, but there was probably behind the scenes crap that was going on that got in the way, low budget. Uh, but they did the best they could with what they had. It's just it boggles my mind that the lead bad guy, the the guy who's running the whole like you know yeah you know, the the sex point thing, sex points thing, um, in the film, is that he is and it just gets me every time is that he is now like the 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 voice of Chevy vehicles like of like of like Chevy uh, motor company or you know, Chevy vehicles uh, for their commercials. That's him. So he did this and then went on his day. He did some TV. People might remember him from the show Numbers because he was on Numbers for a number of years as an FBI agent. And now he pretty much just does. And I think he was in, um, what's that Natalie Portman film in the Walmart film? The the Natalie Portman that gives birth in a Walmart. He was in that movie too. I can't, I can't recall the name of it, but uh, in that particular, uh, but yeah. now he's the voice, he's the voice of Chevy trucks, which I was like, every time I hear it, it was like Chevy. Huh? Interesting. <laughs> well it's and i will i do have to comment because it's just it's so bad and it's the effect at the very end where he's like in college and then the nightmare, like, she the nightmare he has him oh yeah the, yeah the cgi is so bad in that. <laughs> the cgi is not good no no not, not to mention, there's nothing that alludes to that. It's not like a, oh, well, okay, well, there's like a lot of visions and nightmares going on. And then finally, no, he's just like, okay, it, like she, she, she's dead. Spoiler alert. And then he's just in college <laughs> and she just appears behind him. And then she like disintegrates and breaks apart in a super, super cheesy uh, fashion. Yeah. And that's how the movie ends. And it's like a, what? Yeah, just, just cuts. It's just like, it was like, I guess that one last ooh, I, I I'm not 100 percent sure, but yeah, it's ended bad CGI. At least they they saved the horrible CGI towards the end. At least they did that, you know. Oh yeah. man, <laughs> but yeah, they, you know, they lost. I, might as well just end on that. Yeah, I they you know they lost the plot trying to adapt it for the for the you know the the, the next generation <clears throat> or adapting it for the for 90s kids trying to like reutilize that and everything felt shoehorned and cheap. Um, a lot of people, you know, you remember a lot of the faces, you know, the Mina Suvari and, uh, there's, who was the other guy? The, the guy who says the, I we're missing a killer party. The guy who was on the hood of the car, both of them were in, uh, American pie and the dude in the hood of the car is the, is, mm-hmm. uh, God, what was his name? <clears throat> Eddie K. Thomas. Oh, it was Finch, Eddie K. Right? Thomas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was the one who slept with Stifler's mom. So yeah. <laughs> Drew Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer no, Coolidge is amazing. I'm so, gl- <laughs> I'm so glad Stifler's mom is getting the recognition she deserves for White Lotus because she was amazing in that show. But uh, <clears throat> before her character, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. I mean, if you haven't seen it, I will give. I will give. Yeah, I mean, I will give American Pie props for creating its own prawn category that's now famous to this day. So I will give right. American Pie that credit with Stifler's nice. mom. See, just call me. Avi says ninety percent of all monster movies, horror movies, and thrillers all use dark to cover their monsters. I miss being able to see the creature. <clears throat> the last movie I was able to see, I, I saw that did that well, that did it effectively, 
was the monster <clears throat> with um oh day uh I'm totally space it, it was a <clears throat> it's that minimalistic one yeah monster in, from 2015 uh yeah was it yeah from two, two from 2015 with zoe with zoe kazan and ella ballantine we talked about that. I think we've talked about that movie uh, on the show, but that was an amazing util- utilization of light and shadow to effectively create a monster that's lurking out in the woods. Your classic kind of fairy tale monster in that respect. And I thought that was just, it was a brilliant fucking movie and, and heart wrenching. But, uh, but that would, that's an excellent, that, that is one way to make it work and do it well when many don't do it you know, well at all. No, the Pop-Tart jump scare at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Blueberry Pop-Tart. Uh, <laughs> All right. I want to ask the audience, what is the most unnecessary horror sequel? Because to be honest, like, if this movie didn't exist, I don't think we'd be missing anything. So it, it's what, what would you consider the most unnecessary horror sequel? And there's a good amount of them. One was they're just like, oh, yeah, they shouldn't even touched it. Shouldn't even been made. Oh. We've talked about unnecessary, quite a few <clears throat> unnecessary horror sequels. Holy shit. <laughs> what is the most unnecessary horror sequel? <laughs> oh, damn. What about the times we always wanted a sequel and the sequel we got was completely unnecessary? We didn't need it. We, so now we didn't need a sequel in the first place. Um, oh, there's so many. Oh, that's a good one. Wrote another name, Lawnmower Man 2. <laughs> we did not need <laughs> Travis Brown says Troll 2. Oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> uh, Joshua Lee, good to see you, bud. Thanks for being here. Appreciate that. And he says, Aaron will say witchcraft, all witchcrafts, <laughs> all and, of them. Uh, and uh, Dick Pack, Dick Bag Patrol says Jaws 2. Interesting. Jaws I like two is Jaws not two. a bad movie. Jaws two is not a bad movie. The only fault is that it linked itself with Jaws. If it was just another shark movie, it would have been better. Huh? That's true. They were kind of like shoehorned into the, like like a, a shark movie that's been shoehorned into it in order to to have the panache or the the, the name recognition of Jaws. <clears throat> uh, Aaron Reese says it'd be exactly. easier to name every good horror sequel. <laughs> it would be. It absolutely would be. <laughs> Ooh, got a dang! I need to catch up. Um, All six of them. Yeah, Travis Brown says every Friday the Thirteenth film. Don't you dare bag on Friday the Thirteenth, my good sir. Don't you dare. Once you've learned, once you've learned to acknowledge <laughs> that everything is meaningless and every value, every you know value judgment is completely subjective, you learn to love Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight. Anyway, so <laughs> just call me obvious as Poltergeist Two. Interesting. Case Cooper says Eugene storyboarding. No, <laughs> Angel Rivera says Pee Wee's Big Holiday. <laughs> this was kind of um, <clears throat> okay. So Deep Blue Sea two, yeah, Deep Blue Sea two didn't need, didn't need one. Uh, Forty seven meters below didn't need a sequel either. Agree with that, Tina Jones. No, you take that back with Hellraiser three. You take that back. They didn't start becoming unnecessary until five. Um, let me see. All the Sharknado movies says Josh. Yeah, two Lee. and three are the, probably the best ones. Yeah, uh, Ginger's. Oh, uh, Jess called me up and says Ginger Snaps too. I may disagree with that one because the third one was completely unnecessary. The sequel was the just tonally so was like the sequel was just like really tonally different from the first one. 
uh, and wasn't as good, but the third one was fucking god awful. Just god awful. So let's see. Oh, yeah, Hellraiser 3 is the goddamn worst. <laughs> That's <funny. laughs> uh, Oh, Extra J. It still looks fake. Marty McFly, the shark. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh, you, can, say, you can't. Uh, you can't uh, skip over American Werewolf in London. Well, American Werewolf in Paris. No, you was no, American no, Werewolf you in Paris had, was, was like, like a remake. Denova De twenty eight. Yeah, Denova twenty eight. Uh, not American Werewolf in London. American Werewolf in Paris. In Paris, that's yeah. the, bad the one, one with the one with Julie Delpy. Yeah, so that Paris. one, that one is, uh, was very much, and you know, that was very much kind of a, a remake of American Werewolf in London. They just changed it up and kind of modernized it. So, uh, says, matter, I wish I could exist. remember. That's true. It should not exist. He said, I wish I could remember which films this review came from, but a sequel no one asked for to a movie nobody saw. Anything after the first Doom? I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 All right. So definitely let us know down in the comments below what you think the, mo the most unnecessary horror sequel is. Let us know in the comments or weekendhorror at gmail.com. Oh, Rambo 6, the new blood. Uh, Rambo 6, new blood. Oh, the birds too. Okay, Birdemic 2. That was not necessary. Birdemic was there, 1 there was wasn't necessary. <laughs> oh, there's three of them. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the third one. The third one came out like last year. Oof. Uh, let's jump on to our next film. So this one released March 14th, 1979. Going back in the way back machine, 20 years before the Rage Carry 2 released. So March 14th, 1979, we have Tourist Trap. Let's check out this trailer. <laughs> <laughs> oh gotta love it gotta love it so tourist trap uh directed by david schmoller and written by david schmoller and j larry carroll uh starring jocelyn jones john van ness robin sherwood tanya roberts don jeffrey keith mcdermott shylar colby and the legendary chuck fucking connors chuck connors the rifleman was in this bad boy the yeah. film followed yes the film follows a uh, group of teenagers who wind up uh who basically get waylaid and wind up uh, at this tourist track this tourist attraction this off the uh, off the side of the road tourist attraction where uh they encounter the supernatural as the mannequins apparently are alive and an individual who wants to add them to his collection uh, a crazy madman wants to add them to his collection um the film itself was uh produced by full moon uh, produced by charles band so that's why it has that kind of like puppet master feel to it uh so but it's just, it's okay i first one i i gotta i gotta say just yeah okay so the movie itself is effectively creepy and it's fairly disturbing in some of its cinematography i'll say the mannequin the usage of the, of the mannequins was 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 wild almost at some points some points, and this is this is the weird genius of Charles Band and Full Moon. On occasion, almost Lovecraftian in its depiction. Just moments, not all of it. Now, so some of it was just downright fucking goofy. Yeah, some of it was just like, what the fuck is this weirdness? But definitely, and 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 disagree with me on this. Of course, somebody Tony Regime brings up House of Wax, and there's definitely some some parallels there. But this was definitely you can say this is definitely House of Wax meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because Text Chainsaw Massacre came out in 1974. This one came out in 79. And there's absolutely is like 
because I mean, come on, even the depiction of the main bad guy is all too oh, similar oh, to Leatherface. Yeah, right, that was Leatherface. So I definitely think that this I is mean, down to absolutely like everything. Right. You know, and the and the wig, the, the the big black wig and everything. So this is absolutely that like House of Wax meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre, especially given the storyline about the, the the hidden bad guy and everything like that. But I will say, despite its weirdness, despite the moments with the with the music that doesn't seem to fit, like the childlike music that plays in some sequences that makes it more kooky instead of creepy, but then it moves to creepiness. There's a weird disjointedness to it. It's almost love crafty and disjointedness to this. I will say this. Chuck Connors is fucking creepy as a bad guy. That was a creepy yeah. fucking performance. And, and and the thing I liked about I really enjoyed the cinematography in it in terms of the, mm-hmm. the, the lighting. That's why when you had some of the corny music come in, it's like the music comes in corny, but it's like, I'm like, this, this is shot like, suspenseful and creepy mm-hmm. and a lot of darkness and a lot of shadows so the music just doesn't make sense at all uh versus like in texas chainsaw massacre where you have a very bright and well-lit dinner scene right um but i mean but a lot of the shots here a lot of i like just a lot of like isolation a lot of contrast a lot of separation in terms of isolating the characters everything is just this darkness and shadow that i really enjoyed i thought it was really really it just there was a lot of smart decisions made here now keep in mind surprisingly for a full moon production no titties. You're not going to get any. They, they they hint at it in the trailer. You're not going to get any of that. They don't waste time on. It. They don't waste any exposition on that. Essentially, this it focuses predominantly on the supernatural aspects, which were added by Charles Band originally. the The film was not going to be supernatural in any capacity. It was just going to be a normal dude who's just adding people to his mannequin collection. The supernatural aspect was brought in by Band, and I'm pretty sure wisely in order to differentiate it from House of Wax, from just somebody turning people into mannequins and shit. So I thought that that was a smart that that was a smart move to kind of differentiate between the two to add something fresh to it, but uh, the yeah, man, the the usage of the because the, they never really they never really explain it, so it's just kind of right. Bad. Just that he just that he has powers. That's it. That's all we know is that he's got powers, yeah. and that's and all the mannequins you see used to be real people or me, uh, and he's like you know utilizing his powers to bring them to life and talk to him and shit, and it's. This guy's like a really powerful fucking psychic, to be to be perfectly honest. Like he's got this is a really powerful individual who has chosen to sit in the middle of nowhere and utilize his power to turn people into mannequins so he can talk to them and have tea parties with them and shit. Chuck Connors is so fucking creepy in this role. The way he is shot, because I was used, I grew up with Connors as the hero, the rifleman, you know, being the hero guy, the protagonist. And he's got the look of the classic quintessential American, uh, uh, you know, leading guy. But he was, the way they shot him, the cinematography is what sells this movie. The use of light and shadow, very, very smart decisions and conveying things because the practical effects are okay. The weird, creepy mannequins, the way they, you know, the mouths drop open, the way the heads twist and turn, the eyes kind of look around. It's creepy, you know? Mannequins are inherently creepy, especially when they're living mannequins and shit. So, but the way they shot it was so smart. There was was really strong filmmaking here and choices here that you don't really see in in Full Moon anymore. So, which, you know, movies like this kind of help them put them on the map, but 
it was a shame because it was like, this is what they used to be able to produce. Really, really creepy affairs, you know, really interesting stuff, rich set design to go into, to, to take a look at. And then, you know, it was kind of cool to go back and, and witness that. So I recommend anybody, if you haven't seen this one, it's a kind of a delight. I have to admit, I was unexpectedly surprised for that this company put this one out in, in its early days. Yeah, it's it has some nice creepy elements to it. It does have some great kills um, that you can really get a chance to enjoy. And it doesn't really seem like they're like hiding a lot. I mean, it's the film is just it's well done. It's definitely worth a watch. Now, the one thing that struck me, and because automatically the parallels to Texas Chainsaw Massacre are there. Now, as far as an, as far as the narrative thing goes, and this kind of like enroll with me on this because there's only two of us here, and I don't need to, I don't have a third person that I need to give airtime to. Um, so roll with me on this one from from a narrative perspective. <laughs> the I okay, so I saw a, 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 the, it was the parallels to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the things that drive stories like this, especially stories with slashers, okay, are the are the the classic uh, the cautionary tale. Essentially, I saw I began to see there's a lot of threads that go from the from films like this, even though we somebody said, Johnny, help. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're going to you're going to get this. <laughs> the idea of roadside Americana and the idea of the cautionary tales that were told in our earliest in you know, human beings, early storytelling endeavors through fairy tales like Grimm's fairy tales. So if you look back. The idea of expressing these things in the places that you shouldn't go, the off the beaten path of forging new or going places that you were unaware of, simple mistakes. The entire this entire film itself, Tourist Trap, and films like it, and films that you know it, that it itself was inspired by, are all predicated upon our protagonist doing things that we know we should never do. Like for example, when the car breaks down and they all go swimming. Okay, so they go, but they leave the guy alone mm -hmm. with the car, but then the guy leaves the car alone. So the car is not there. And it just happens to be it was and it was this idea of like the, the I found it interesting. The car they used was a Volkswagen 181, uh, which was designed for uh, for uh, for World War Two usage. And that vehicle itself, the 181, became really, really popular in California because the doors and the hood and the, the, the top could all come off. They were all removable so that you could drive al fresco is what Volkswagen called it. And so you have the idea you know, to set up these protagonists, you know, they're, they're you know, to set up these individuals. These are the carefree, carefree spirits. They're fun, you know, the loving, you know, loving kids, you know, whatever the the uh, the generation, you know, the uh, generation of love. And then they run into this, you know, this place. So they warming up the turd polisher nine thousand. It's not the turd polisher nine thousand. I promise you. The idea was, <laughs> I began to see that. Those narrative tropes that we all grew up with as kids, that our parents grew up with as kids, going all the stretching all the way back to our to our European to our uh, ancestors' European origins, where we were telling stories around the campfire, things to warn people about. The urban legends in and of themselves are all based upon those cautionary tales we used to tell our kids, and that's essentially where this is really, really on display. Little things, little mistakes that the protagonists make that wind up putting them into a terrible position. And I think that this one was really well, really capsulates it. And I think it's all because of the supernatural aspect is because off the beat, this very much Hansel and Gretel in that respect. They're, they go out there, they kind of get stranded, stranded out in the middle of nowhere. They go seeking a place of refuge and the place of refuge happens to be a place of danger because they are not where they're supposed to be. 
And then people going off alone, people leaving their their belongings unattended, like leaving the car unattended where the bad guy can get to it. People like staying in a place where the bad guy goes off and says, let me go with your friend to go fix the car. And the bad guy starts splitting you up one by one, you know, stuff like that. And I, you get this sense. Tourist Trap, Raven, Raven Darkstar, good to see you. It says, Deliverance, wrong turn, exactly. And they these all trace back to that. And it didn't really click because it needed the supernatural aspect, which I think was a very smart decision on Van's uh, decision to add that in to really sell that, uh, to really sell that narrative, the, the strength of the narrative, because it speaks to us on, a, on an almost primal level. You know, to speak to that child within us of the things our parents warned us about, which is why I think this film is more charming than you would anticipate anticipate it being. Well, then you have to add the supernatural element because of the parallels with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you got teens traveling across the country. They're going somewhere new. Um, this one, teens traveling across the country. They're going somewhere new. They have to face a killer. Mm-hmm. There's so many oh, the hitcher, like the hitcher. between the, the hitcher is another one, yeah. Yeah. So they so they had to add in that supernatural element. And honestly, a lot of times they add in supernatural stuff in film. Most of the time, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It goes off in some weird direction. But here it really does work because why does he have telekinetic powers? Who cares? He just has Who knows? Them. <laughs> yeah, he just has them, and it's a new threat that they have to go. And uh, have to go and fight against. I liked it. I thought it was really, really smart. I thought it was a. I thought it was a, just a smart decision on Charles Band's part to make sure that they, they add in there because uh, it shows that Band and the people behind Full Moon, the people behind this, at least had a really, really good idea of what speaks to the horror genre, what speaks to the genre, what speaks to fans of the genre, and what speaks to us as a movie going on, or as a as a, as a people who you eat up, you know, movies as far as storytelling goes. It was an excellent storyline. I mean, really, really good. It leaves things to the imagination and, of course, doesn't answer all your questions because that is what life is like. And so this one hits a little bit different. You wouldn't expect it to. You're just like, oh, it's just a Texas Chainsaw House of Wax rip. But the, it hits differently, which is why I think it's intriguing, which is why I think it's kind of it's, it's withstood the test of time since 1979 to get to where it is, to look back and go, yeah, that's kind of what you would expect, a good classic cautionary tale slasher not really a slasher film um in the in this in the sense of a slasher film but still you know your yeah, eponymous yeah. bad guy lurking out in the woods you go off the beaten path and you encounter you encounter the evil and you try to survive it and then of course the texas made chain the texas chainsaw rip of the girl going insane at the end of it and driving off with the mannequin bodies of her friends and shit which i thought was a nice little ad nice little add-on but she just goes and is like ah! she's just driving down the road like ah so classic, classic full moon <laughs> stuff there. But this one was intriguing. And there's a combination. You know, really smart minds were behind this as far as the writing goes, as far as the the, the techniques go. So, yeah, this one didn't need the Turd Polisher 9000 because it actually was quite good, you know? And it was weird because it was from an unexpected source, which is Full Moon and Charles Band, who don't typically have the grand reputation these days of delivering compelling, nuanced horror okay. films. So... <laughs> I mean, they, they they can hit one every once in a while, and plus, also keep in mind like the time period that it came out. It came out in '79, so right. you had Halloween '78. Um, so you're just now getting into that golden era of slasher films. So even a lot of these concepts that we may see as 
cliche or part of the tropes of that genre were still brand new at that time. So they're still going in and keep it. So keep in mind when watching it, think of the audience in 1979 where some of these things are new. It comes more as a cautionary tale than it is today where we're like, oh, we see they're just trying to split people up so they can kill or can get to them. That's new back then. Right. 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 These concepts were just kind of hitting. And now, now we're over old hat. I was like, nope, no, we, now we have the horror rules. We actually, we, part of the party, part of the horror genre party has to be a nerd who understands that we are in a horror film and this is what we need to do in the horror film. So that's, that became <laughs> like, at some point, I mean, you had your jock, you had your, you had the, you know, you go by cabin in the woods, you had the jock, you had the horror, you had the, the fool, you had the, well, now at some point, now you need the nerd the scholar who knows the rules of what we have is nope this is what we have we shouldn't be doing this you you have to have that now so and Andrew Rivera says crazier yet it was PG this is true this was a PG film which is odd because this one was creepy as fuck you know and now keep in mind this is before PG-13 that's true so you only have PG and you have R and there are some great kills but there's uh oh I hope we didn't lose Eugene um, but it's not like a lot of guts are, are coming out. Right. All right. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Rodos and brings House of a Thousand Corpses. Absolutely. And Josh Lee says European mm -hmm. answers. I'm talking about where, you know, uh, you know, the Germanic stories of old, like Grimm's fairy tales and things that came out of Eastern, Eastern Europe, the tales of vampires and monsters and, you know, things lurking in the darkness, you know, the, 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 the inspired stories that you know the stories that, that inspire the, the urban legends and the cautionary tales that we have today and how that trope continues still continues on you know even to, it informs even the most basic fundamentals of what the horror genre is is the stories we told ourselves to keep ourselves safe from the things lurking in the darkness and this particular movie i think encapsulates that extraordinarily well without getting too far away from it and without leaning too hard on it it's kind of like, remember this. And I really, really dug that. It was just kind of like, yeah, you can imagine being told this story, you know, when you're younger or, or hearing about it, something to that degree. And utilizing roadside Americana, which is you know, a trope here in America, is a little out of the way, like the thing. You ever drive west, you see big billboards for the thing, see the thing. Those little things that try to draw you off the road, off, you know, draw you onto the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, off the beaten path. You know, they want to bring you out in the middle of nowhere to go and see something, you know, and you never know what's going to happen because you were going this direction. But no, come over here and see this. You don't know what it is. It's mystery. It's interesting. And utilizing your curiosity against you. Very, very interesting stuff. I thought it was very cool. So but my question is this one, because the practical effects of this were actually really, really intriguing and at some point extremely creepy. I want to ask the audience, do y'all find mannequins? inherently creepy or scary some people do some people don't some people think they're silly some people think they're sexy like in the movie mannequin so the question is do you find mannequins creepy inherently creepy or scary let us know in the comments below or a weekend or gmail.com of course here in the live chat your world's largest ball of twine and then you but the yep. reason it's so big is because there's the reason it's so big is because there's bodies in there because they're adding you to the twine <laughs> <laughs> For <laughs> says, I've always referred to tourist traps as idiot bait. Uh, Joshua Lee says, Yes, yes, creepy. Case Cooper says, Nah, Denova 28 says, Not really. Um, uh, just call me obviously, it's part of the uncanny valley. 
Good point. Good point. Yeah. And Tony says that. those roadside attractions are like will of the wisps. Yeah. And oh, it Plotel says it depends upon who's drawing the mannequin. <laughs> that's, that's a you reference. That's, that's a you reference. Absolutely. So if I'm drawing, definitely frightening. Definitely frightening. Um, little too anatomically correct. Uh, Cindy Sue says depends upon the mannequin. And Sir Cabin says uncanny valley, creepy as hell. Rodinella Sam says creepy. Richard Meador says I agree, creepy. The twine is made of people. It is made of people. Uh, that's that's the secret. Um, and uh, Jay versus depends upon what they're wearing. Interesting. And yeah, pretty good Twilight Zone episode. Absolutely was. Definitely interesting stuff. But mannequins, I, I find them kind of creepy. But it depends upon how they're lit. So they're, they they have to be lit a certain way to evoke. Yeah, to, to evoke that creepiness for me. Uh, now dolls is another thing, like like creepy dolls, like the movie dolls or Dolly Dearest or shit like that. Dolls was fucking creepy as shit. So I'll just say that. Yeah, but those were like little monsters inside the dolls. So I don't fucking know. Yeah. Um, that. <laughs> all right. Ugh. So, but yeah, definitely let us know in the comments below or at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Jason's behind me. He'll protect me. Thank you, Tina Jones. <laughs> all right. So, dude, what do we have now? I've been waiting to hear your opinion on this one. So let's, uh, what do we have next? <laughs> I really am. I'm very curious. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. So next up we have dead birds, which was released March 15th, 2005. Roll you it. Can tell it's a winner. You can tell it's a winner from the name. <laughs> all right. We have, Dead Birds, that was directed by Alex Turner, starring Henry Thomas, Nikki Adcox, Isaiah Washington. Oh. <laughs> Isaiah Washington. Isaiah Washington. Isaiah <laughs> Washington. Patrick Fugit and Michael Shannon. And basically what it is, is you have, it's a uh, Western film and you have a couple people they're on the run they go and they rob a bank and they hold up in this house trying to make a getaway and then the house turns out to be haunted and shit gets or, real or occupied by it's something you know or, it, it's yeah or it's it's not it's sort of real <laughs> yeah the spirit's kind of creepy <laughs> i i also want to th throw it out there because um uh two other individuals muse watson was in this muse watson who played the fisherman in i know what you did last summer he was in this one as well as a uh, noted character actor mark boone jr who was one of my favorites ever since i first saw uh, i think i think I, the first time i ran across him and recognized him was in sons of anarchy and so, and I've recognized him ever since then. He's he, the dude is just an awesome, awesome character actor. But Mark Boone Jr. was in it. Uh, but surprisingly, a number of big names: fucking Michael Shannon, Henry Thomas, uh, you know Isaiah Washington, and you know Patrick Fugit, and of course Nikki Acox, who unfortunately passed away recently um, after a battle with leukemia. Uh, she was also Meg on Supernatural. For those who might remember that show, uh, who really, really into that show, she was the original Meg in that. But she unfortunately passed away recently. But um, this was. A very, very strange movie. So the thing, uh, this film, in my in my personal opinion, kind of walks the edge between uh, very basic. Uh, it, shit gets semi-real. I would agree with that, Eddie. It kind of gets semi-real. Yeah. So it the film walks the razor's edge between basic formulaic filmmaking and, you know, compelling and like compelling nuanced horror. Um, 
the director of this was Alex Turner. And it was interesting because Alex uh, got his start working for other uh, working for other individuals and the things he brought to uh, films was really, really strong, which is why he was able to kind of segue and get this. This was his directorial debut. So the one, the one movie he's really known for. And unfortunately he's got, this is a talented director who has good ideas and good instincts, but I don't think he's ever really gotten the opportunity to hone them. And you can tell because things randomly is like are randomly really, really smart. And unfortunately, the vast majority of it is very formulaic and very basic. But there are moments there where you can see the director's like good instincts come out and how long he stays on a shot, how he captures a particular actor in a particular scene, how he conveys particular you know things with light and with shadow, you know, working with the with the uh, lighting with lighting and sound, how he captures the how he sets the stage of the of the house and everything. The director's in charge of wears many, many hats as far as like directing, like what they, you know, this needs to look like this. This needs to convey this. He's got good instincts, really smart stuff and a nose for interesting, for compelling storytelling. But I don't think he has the, either the means or the experience to really carry it across the finish line, which is why I say this kind of walks the edge between basic formulaic storytelling, bad guys enter house, meet worse shit. And a nuanced storyline that offers, you know, compelling uh, interactions of our of our detailed of our detailed antiheroes or or you know, antagonists because they're all bad guys. They're bank robbers, and so the yeah, bad guys essentially meet worse shit. Yeah, and then in as far as universe building goes, with the twist at the end when we realize, oh, it's a, it's kind of a loop. Whoever goes to the house becomes the monsters that are encountered by the next individuals who go to the house and it keeps repeating the cycle keeps repeating over and over again so could the whole deal where the, the they shot the monster at the beginning of the film and it's like what the hell is that thing i don't know man it looks creepy let's go in the house fucking stupid so they go into the house and then they you know <laughs> shit hits the fan then they wind up like harry henry thomas is running through running to escape and someone shoots him and he looks like one of the monsters that they shot in the beginning of the film Oh, I get there's a curse going on here. Interesting. But no development. Nothing more hinted at. Moments of, of, of intelligence, moments of brilliance that we just don't get any more of, which was fucking annoying because it was just enough. It was like, oh, that, that, that's interesting. You got my attention. Okay. Okay. Isaiah Washington and, and Bruni. I get it. And, 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 so, <laughs> and his death was such a throwaway. I take it Isaiah Washington did not want to get messy for this. He's like, because people are getting killed. And, you know, people are dying and they're dying messily. He didn't want to get messy. So his character literally just vanishes from the fucking movie, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. And he just like, <laughs> poof, and he disappears. He's like, where'd he go? No, I have no idea. No clue. <laughs> he just vanishes. Well, he's, he's just going. And, and the thing is, is after, after meeting him and talking with him, I can totally picture him on set being like, I don't want to get messy today. I'm right, not getting messy. You know? Cool. You're just gone. <laughs> it's weird. It's it's weird. Oh, uh, take it easy. Just call me Avi. He's got to go to bed. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Um, oh, Circus, this, this would have been really uh, better as a 30-minute short. It just dragged all the way through and never actually built any tension. He's got a point. Every time there was an opportunity to build tension, there was never an attempt to capitalize on it. It was like we almost get there, and then we fall short. 
you know, which was which was really frustrating about the movie, especially with all of this talent, with the talent of Henry Thomas, Nikki Acox, Isaiah Washington, Mark Boone Jr., fucking Michael Shannon was in this thing. All of this assembled talent, and this is the best you could put out? It was just weird, yeah, you know? See, and, and see, this is what... It comes on, and I'll, I'll blame the director on this, understanding the concepts of the genre that you are going for. Because when you do a supernatural horror film, and there's mm-hmm. a ton of them out there, you have to have that tension. You right. have to. There are other horror genres that you can get away with not doing tension. You can do slasher. Somebody, oh no, they start running and they die some gory death. Whatever on but when it comes to the supernatural you have to have that you have you don't necessarily have to have the jump scare because we've talked many times before that jump scares can be overrated but you have to have that tension you have to like what's around that corner what's going to be next because it's supernatural it can be anything you have to capitalize on that one of the excellent sequences i thought was and it what really caught caught me was there was the sequence when isaiah washington goes into the barn and so the entire first and foremost, the entire set is brilliantly shot. It's re- looks really good. It's an excellent. It's an old house. It's full of old stuff. It's the the fact that this is a period piece, they paid a lot of attention to that in order to create a visual, a an excellent visual representation of period piece. And we'll talk about the logistics on period pieces here in a second. But an example of what you're talking about was there was the opportunity they had when Isaiah Washington goes into the barn. He's hearing something like that. He goes to the barn and he sees like the slave who's staked out, and then like. Her midsection splits open and the thing comes out of her and shit. It's like the way that that slow burn into that graphic scene, you know, was an excellent way. And then he looks at it and then, you, and then he's like lost in his mind and shit because he's going fucking insane because there are fucking demons running around and shit. So, but that whole build, him going in there, the scene with the slave, the noise and, you know, like wondering what's coming. And then all of a sudden she splits open and this fucking thing comes out of her and shit. That was excellent. But you know what that built to? That built to him running through the field and then vanishing in a puff and like literally like a cloud, just like he gets hit by a monster and then just disappears. That's not how you build up on this. That's not, that's not how you build on it. And the thing is, is it looked like it could have been an excellent moment because he's in his knees and he sees like, he sees the apparition like sticks his head over on top of the over the barn, the second level, whatever you call it, for a barn. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, maybe it's just gonna jump on top of him right there and start ripping him to shreds, or maybe we get an exciting chase scene or just something. And it's just nope, he kind of flips out and he runs off, and the rest of them kind of casually just walk out of the barn. Right. So that's this is very, it. very odd. Very odd. Um very, you know, very strange that respect. Uh, good to see you, Facty. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you hanging out. Aaron Reese says, It's a demon. Let's go fuck with its shit. Yeah, that's that's always a mistake. <laughs> Paracord Princess says, Bad guy meets bad guys meet worse <laughs> stuff. Oh, dust till dawn. That's true. The vampires met the gecko brothers in that. That's pretty much how that movie went. Yeah, because the gecko brothers were the badasses in that one. <laughs> they fucked uh, it up. They, they fuck shit up. And so there was, there was, but one thing I'll give this, and likely where things kind of dropped the ball was because so much effort was put into for, for a film this small <clears throat> that didn't see a massive giant release. <clears throat> it was just one more kind of in the pan. For a film this small, a lot of attention to detail was paid to to the period to setting up the period because it's set during the Civil War, 
trying to shoot period pieces is a fucking logistical nightmare. And, and also very, very expensive. There have been fantastic shows that were created by HBO, the HBO ran where production had to stop because it became too expensive to produce each episode where it's literally like Rome. Rome was canceled because the production values were so fucking high. It just got, even though it was a a critically acclaimed uh, series, they eventually had to end it because it just was too expensive to recreate the Roman empire. This one, to recreate this, to shoot in an area that is functional, like the Civil War, shoot in this little town that's functional like the Civil War, you're looking at your you're not only the, the locations in and of itself, the architecture in and of itself, you're also looking at the uh, the costuming, wardrobing, and of course, uh, animal handling, and not to mention weaponry to have, and all of it is up to snuff. The guns, they, the handguns they used, Everything that will work well for the Confederate side. So whoever did this, because everybody is involved, this is on the Confederate side. You had Confederate uh, soldiers that left and abandoned, became bank robbers. And then, of course, you had Confederate soldiers in it. Everything is up to snuff and very well researched and executed. And I think that's where the money went. When you put all of that effort into this one particular thing and you do it really, really well, unfortunately, there's not really enough to go around elsewhere because you're limited by your budget. And so... That may have been where the ball got dropped is so much effort was make this thing look really, really good and authentic. And they just didn't have the money to continue shooting where they needed to shoot. Like, like, damn, we spent all this money. We only have enough money to, we have to get this in a few takes and we can't let the camera linger to capture shit. We don't have time as, as my Dean of education at KD as TA Taylor used to say, as TA used to say, we don't have time for masturbating on screen. Now I know that sounds hilarious, but masturbating on screen is when the actor is allowed to kind of do the scene and kind of play with it and add nuance to it. And sometimes it can be kind of masturbatory because like, oh, I'm, I'm preening for the camera. You know, I'm just, oh, look at me perform. But sometimes you got to be able to do that. But your budget can limit your opportunities. And if you limit your actors, you're going to get boilerplate. Sometimes you got to let them play a little bit. And that's kind of what this mm-hmm. needed. But if you don't have the money to shoot because you spend it all on the set, that's where you that's the problem you're gonna run into. So in this is and it's it's great that we're talking about this because I actually uh I did a couple of pickup days for a Western feature that's looking at coming uh, out either end of this year or early next year. So I being on set working on a Western uh for about two days is really, really cool. The thing about Westerns is this, and any kind of a period piece is JL's right, it's expensive. It is very, very expensive because a lot of times if you're doing a modern day film, you, for example, wardrobe, most of the time for wardrobe, actors bring their own stuff. Hey, bring a couple of outfits. We're going to pick something. Those are the colors. We're kind of looking for this feel. And then the actor can just wear that. Everything, every outfit has to be customized. Because right. it has you, it has to get good quality. You can't go to Party City and get a good Civil War Confederate soldier outfit. It has to be made. It has to be wool. And guess what? That's expensive. All the dresses are expensive. The wagons are expensive. Every aspect, even for example, the guns are expensive. You have to show actors how to load them because during the Civil War, they're still using muskets. Muskets are a lot harder to load than just something that has a bullet that you just chamber. 
you have to go through the whole powder process and put a percussion cap on and so forth and so forth. Mm -hmm. So an actor, not only does an actor have to know how to do that, an actor has to know how to do it well enough to pass as somebody who's comfortable doing that. So it not can't look like the first time. Not to mention the animal handling, because horses were used to a great degree in this, which means that not only do you have uh, not only do you have the animal handlers that have to come out and deal with the horses, the horses have to be are the screen tested horses, which are very expensive to rent and have on set. Dealing with animals is always dicey because you know sometimes animals are unpredictable. Not to mention your cast; they all have to know how to ride. They have to know how to ride authentically. So there's there's a lot of the logistics of shoot the complexities of shooting period pieces is always a double-edged sword because the more you go to make it authentic and someone else brought up on HBO, Carnival. Carnival was a brilliant show, canceled after two seasons because the production value or the, the production value was so intense and so and so amazingly authentic, but how expensive was it to recreate the 30s and the Dust Bowl? Yeah, it, Holy shit. Exactly. So. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because when we were shooting the Western, uh, one of the horses bucked one of the trainers in the face. Oh shit! Like on like the second shot of the day, we're like action. The horse whoops, and just kicks the trainer <laughs> in the face. <laughs> because the thing is, this horses don't care that you're making a movie. That's so true. you can either get a non-film trained horse, that. hope that it's on its best behavior. And the thing about horses, I've shot horses several times. A non-film trained horse is good for probably about an hour and a half. Before they start getting restless, before they're like, okay, I'm ready for, I'm bored now, I'm ready for something else. And then, and on, on top of that, so if you get the film horse, the horse that was dependable all day, it's going to be really expensive. Right. So you have, and not to mention areas that you can't control because a lot of the angles that we picked were because we had to frame out stuff. You, because you would have a modern looking house out of focus in the background. There were times where we're like, okay, we have to shoot at a low angle because if we shot at eye level, you can see a, a steel fence in the a steel fence off in the distance. Right. So it really limits what you can do creatively because you're still trying to maintain that Western feel. Right. It's always dicey, <clears throat> and honestly, I think that that's where this one kind of dropped the. Where, where the, the it wasn't like a drop the ball. It was a drop the ball. Because, you know, due to circumstance, the circumstances was they were doing a really, really visually interesting film and a visually authentic film. And unfortunately, I think what the movie we got was with the leftovers, uh, which is a shame. Now, maybe double the budget on this one. If they, they'd been able to go in there with double the budget they had, they could have had all that authenticity and made it look fantastic and had a really compelling and fleshed out film by allowing the characters to work with the script allowing the actors to work with the script and really try different different ways to convey different scenes. There could have been more fleshed out, you know, and less need to fall down on jump scares and some of the greater world building they would have been able to explore that as well. So, this is one of the, you know, kind of one of the things you got to you got to you got to deal with as a director and I think unfortunately that's probably why Turner hasn't directed much after that. Just, you know, finding that balance is hard, you know, you sometimes you get your shot and I think uh, the one, what was it he did after this? Because there was, um, oh, I can't recall. There was another one he did after this one. I think like Red Sands, something like this, which didn't go anywhere. So it's, you know, just yeah. one of those things. It's kind of a bummer because he's a talented dude. You know, maybe we'll see something else from him in the future. But, uh, but yeah, hard stuff. 
and, uh, and, this is, uh-huh. and, and this is the thing when it comes with period pieces, and especially when you're on a limited budget, always ask yourself, does this have to take place during this time period? Because a lot of period films a change here and there can be set modern day and then modern day can easily shave a million dollars off your cost. Right. I mean, it just really can. I mean, obviously if you're doing something, we're going to do the battle of Gettysburg. Obviously that has to be 1863, but a lot of times I was like, Hey, we got some people on the run and they rob a bank. Could we tweak this? And they get caught in the house. Could we tweak this for a small town set in present day? Those little tweaks can save you can save you millions. Yep. Yeah. Rhoda Nellis name brings up Bruce Campbell hates Lord of the Rings because they rented all the trained horses in New Zealand. So he had a terribly trained horse on Jack of All Trades. That's that's interesting. <laughs> that is very interesting. Definitely. And see, even he, you have Aaron say, if you don't spend money, uh if you don't spend money properly, you end up with the rust incident. And exactly. You exactly. cannot skimp out on some of the safety things when you're having live weapons on set when you're not getting the adequate training that is necessary to handle weaponry to handle animals because a horse can kill somebody yes it can i was and uh, i remember just back in scouts uh back when i was when i was in boy scouts we did we did uh, horseback training and horseback riding um and one of our one of the members of our troop uh just by act purely by accident didn't aggravate the horse didn't do anything horses have a tendency when they're happy they're excited to to jump their to to uh to you know raise their head up and down to kind of like nod like you know when they you know what i'm talking about yeah they lift their nerves up so he happened to turn wrong and the horse did that right into his face and shattered and shattered his nose damn near fractured his orbits because he just turned wrong and the horse went ha went, went up to like to uh, I guess like th- throw his head up at him, and he went face first right into its nose bone, and purely accident. Of course, yeah. didn't do anything wrong. He was just too close, and he turned wrong. Bam! And so, and damn near, I think almost not. I think he was he was like a concussion and almost knocked unconscious. But yeah, that fucked him up bad. So crazy shit like that happens. You know, you never know. You got to be and it's got to be careful. That's why that's why that money is there. That's why it's expensive. But uh, I wish they'd gotten more on this one because there was a lot I wanted to like. A lot I wanted, but it's a lot I expected, but you just just Turner could Turner just couldn't deliver it. He just he just couldn't. So yeah. It so I want to ask the audience what is what you considered the best historical period horror film? What is the best period piece horror film out there? There are some there are a lot of good ones. Um instantly it comes to mind is Bavitch. Which we keep calling it, the, the uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the bitch, which is extremely accurate. And one of the things that I think really helped Robert Edgar's in terms of saving costs is the fact that it was just one house in the middle of nowhere, aside from like the town in the very beginning. So you just built this one house, middle of nowhere, and you can just live there versus going to all these different places and all have all these different buildings that you have to interact with. Uh, Aaron Reese brings up Ravenous. Yes, oh, yeah, Ravenous. Yeah. Um, I'm going to bring up because uh, I get it because I'm a tre- I'm a tremendous uh, Scene Bean fan. Or sorry, Sean Bond. My bad, Sean Bean fan. Um, I absolutely love Sean Bean, and uh, Black Death was really fucking good. Uh, 
The uh, it's the one where he gets um, drawn and quartered at the end. Oh, I haven't seen Black Death. Oh, he's so fucking oh. good, dude. And that and that was back in the time of they like said that was like thirteen hundreds period piece where they have to re, you know recreate those you know the medieval era which was fan fucking tastic. Sean Sean Bean was great in that one. Casey Cooper says Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer, nice. <laughs> oh, yes. Rodan Lassane brings up Army of Darkness. Yes. Very that was good too. Uh, Factor brings up uh, was it uh, one million BC? I think it might be supposed to be one million or ten thousand BC. Yeah, it's like ten thousand BC. The but that's, uh, that's hundred thousand BC. But either way, yeah. Uh, you also have Sarcasm says Ginger Snaps three. Ginger Snaps three. <laughs> Ooh, Rodan Lassane up the Keep. Oh, oh, the keep was fucking yeah. good. Yes, and doing and doing World War Two, doing World War Two pairs of is really expensive. Yes, um, Ranger Rivera brings up the Woman in Black. Very cool. Ooh, Pan's Labyrinth was good because that was uh, um, during um, that was during a uh, Spanish during Revolution, right? The Spanish Revolution. Yeah. Yes, that one was uh, Pan's Labyrinth was was excellent as well as uh, ooh Andy War uh, Superintendent of Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. Very cool. Um, plot hole brings up alien. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but definitely let us know down in the comments below or of course at weekendhorrorgmail.com. And I know why we spend so much time on dead birds because this next one is just garbage. We don't have much. Before, because I do want to, this movie was way better than anybody thought or it should have been. But Raven Darkstar said Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Eliz- yeah, yeah. Um, Victoria was that Victorian? Is that Victorian? No, yeah, no, Victor- it's Elizabeth. No, it's a uh, um, Elizabeth. Yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, Victorian area. It was a Victorian area. Yeah, Victorian. Yeah. And Victorian dress always, you know, always a bitch. And then you throw yeah. zombies in it. Yeah, the fantastic yeah. stuff. Oh man. So, uh, but we're gonna talk about this one uh, really, really quick. We'll just make. You know, I mean, really fast. There's not much to say about this yes. one, uh, but this is definitely a, a, you know, to kind of bring it full circle. Uh, the cautionary tale of of uh, cautionary tale of filmmaking. Certainly not the worst we've ever seen, but let's talk about it real quick. We'll, we'll just, we're going to snake it in here in the last in the last few minutes. Uh, this released March sixteenth, two thousand fifteen, and it is the Coven. Let's check out this trailer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, yes, that was the Coven, and it's a United Kingdom fantasy horror film uh, directed by John Mackey. Uh, written by Jamie Mackey and starring Dexter Fletcher, Chloe Mackey, Holly Mackey. You can see there's a trend here. Your family, okay? Antonio Cal- Antonio Callahan, um, which is weird because Tony O'Callahan is just we've known him for so many actually you know, stuff. But nonetheless, the film follows a group of teens who hear about uh, a group of or basically a wicked group that used to meet out in the woods uh, north of I believe what is uh, the Queen's Woods in Highgate. And they decide to go out there and investigate themselves, see if they can find this group of people that, or some evidence of these people that disappeared out there. And it was a group of practitioners who who practiced Cochrane's craft. So the one, the, so and and ultimately, shit gets fucking weird. It, not really weird, just gets kind of like silly and goofy. Um, Aaron brings it up. It's very important. It's like you know, fuck this shit. Wicca didn't believe in Satan. Very, very true. So there's. The same thing is added in as kind of like, I guess, a you know, weird thing. The the thing about this particular film, and yes, it is a craft ripoff. It absolutely is a crap, a crap. Uh, it's a weird, just disjointed British ripoff of the craft. 
The craft does it so much better than the craft is more authentic in its depiction of this. This one goes to the whole like Satanist thing or Satanic thing where Lucifer's involved. This requires a, mm-hmm. a, a sacrifice of seven individuals in the woods and shit like this. And that's what happens that the devil came and took them and stuff. And, but uh, fucking hell, the movie doesn't know what it wants to be. The movie's absolutely tr- uh, trash. And the only thing that I found was interesting was that Cochran's craft and what they were talking about in the opening sequence when they're in the when they're in the classroom and the teacher is talking to them, that whole opening scene, that's all based in reality. So yes, practitioners of Cochran's craft, Cochran's craft is a legitimate thing that is a legitimate uh, form of Wicca that was practiced in the Queen's Wood in Highgate. Those individuals had a reputation and that's where they take the inspiration for this film from. But the weird fucked up thing on this, despite how bad it is, is I think what they really leaned on is the trope that if you deliver things with a British accent, they seem more authoritative. And that's what they were trying to sell this on. It's like the UK version of the craft, but you should take it more seriously because it's it's rooted in reality, sort of, and everybody has a British accent. And of course, you don't believe people, really. People have authority when they have a British accent, like Robin Hood, you know, because unlike other Robin Hoods, I can speak with a British accent. Oh. So, oh, he's good. He's good. So, but that's all this thing was. Otherwise, this is fuckers running around in the woods with a camera. Didn't oh, know how this... to light shit. Didn't know how to. I mean, and what the fuck? I mean, this right here, it looks like what NANA says. It looks like a low budget 90s film. Like the fact yeah. this is in shot in 2000 or at least came out in 2015 is appalling when you have when we were talking about tourist trap that tourist trap looks better now shot in 79 right that was a small budget film also um it's just it's all of the the lighting's terrible the camera move the camera this all and it's not a found footage film it's not this is supposed to be regular cinematography, but I don't know if the cameraman had to pee the entire film or something <laughs> like that, but it, just, it makes no sense at all whatsoever. Um, it was, it was acting- a weird, it was, it was a mishmash of, of just weak uh, uh, horror tropes. They're just like all the little tropey things that they could go ahead and throw in this to give it, to, to give it some kind of appeal whatsoever. And then, but they didn't even pull those off. Right. So, <laughs> They they didn't they fell into the trap and you see this a lot with beginning filmmakers when they come up with an idea and they go oh you know what let's do it because it's cool not because it drives a story not because it reveals characterization not because it's okay the it gives the audience information um, about this or that for story purposes no you know why does the camera move that way because it look cool. Why are they doing this? It would be cool. It would be cool. And it has no basis because this film feels like a family had a little bit of money and they got a camera and they're like, let's just go make a film. That's exactly just what it feels like. And let's hate on, let's take witchcraft or Wicca and tie it into Satanist Satanism or like, 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 like Satan and Lucifer and stuff like that. And tie those two things together to make this decidedly anti Wicca film in that respect, because they completely misrepresent what Cochran's craft was, even though there's some people that there's individuals that argue that Cochran's craft was not exactly paganism. Um, that it was just, it was, yeah, it was weird in and of itself, but it's a complete total misrepresentation. Misrepresentation. I think that you're right. This family had some money, 
they had a camera, they decided to make a movie that was, you know, personally, it was like they wanted to attack this idea and it came out absolutely horribly. Obviously, this is what happens when non non-filmmaker well technically they're filmmakers now because they made a fucking movie but when individuals who have not come up in the industry and don't really have an idea as to what filmmaking entails and kind of the theory of film like film theory in that respect what we go to training for what we what we trained for years doing what we went to school for to understand these concepts and how they work from a narrative perspective and how you're telling a story you get this which is just people running around in the woods with a camera with a basic kind of idea as to what they're trying to convey. And in this one, it was just witchcraft is bad. And yeah, that's it. And just yeah. look at the comments here. It's like, well, you obviously could not afford a steady cam or yeah. a gimbal. Could they not afford a tripod? Just lock <laughs> the tripod down. That's all you have to do. Yeah. Not not fantastic. This, you're right, wrote it, wrote it in the last name. This family is no Neil Breen. They absolutely are. The basics of filmmaking aren't even here. <laughs> Extra J. Technically, they're filmmakers now because they made a fucking movie. <laughs> well, I mean, they did. Yeah, I mean, that's true. They did. I mean, they're, they're a filmmaker. I'm not saying that they're continuing. That they shouldn't continue without, without better training. But yeah, this is what, one of those goofy fucking films that should not have come along. But it was an opportunity to kind of look at it's like what exactly they were, what exactly in Wicca they were mishandling, and why this one is very insulting to those practitioners of Wicca, to those practitioners of the craft, to those individuals who who have deeply rooted histories in uh, that in the the pagan belief system. This just is a complete insult to all of that. It misrepresents it. It does it for the you know does it for the you know the gaslighting effect and only people who would take us be like yep it's of the devil and you play with the devil you're gonna die and it's gonna look like terrible cgi as cgi faces are melted into a burning tree which i shit you not was the fucking conclusion of the film you know that that's what that was so nothing nothing solid here laughably bad in some parts and absolutely fucking goofy and you know one of those unfortunate examples of when a genre that we love that is utilized to tell compelling stories and to continue some trends that we have that we have developed, you know, throughout our history, is utilized to kind of attack and not be, you know, it's just one of those awful examples of when the horror genre is is turned against itself. You know, it's kind of like, nah, we're going to use this to attack this particular idea. And I never kind of dig those; they they kind of leave me with a bad taste in my mouth. But uh, you know, it's what you're going to get sometimes. It's just going to remind you to go and watch other better horror films like The Craft, you know? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is, and this is one of those where it just it falls into the black void of films because there's no reason to watch this. There's no, there's, there's not, e- this isn't even like funny bad like Neil Brain, where you can like turn a drinking game out of it. It's, this is just bad. It's just boring. It's just, it's whatever. You just forget about it. I put it into the turd polish 9000 and nothing came out. Nothing. Nothing. Which indicates that the whole thing was a turd. There wasn't anything to polish. It just literally was just, I put it in and was like, it was like, there's nothing. There was nothing there. Nothing but air. Nothing but air came out. It was like, you know what? At least that's 
air is better. Like the existence of air is better than this fucking movie. So <laughs> I will say that. But I do want to ask the audience, like I said, this is what we watch them so you don't fucking have to on occasion. But I do want to ask the audience, talking about Wicca, witchcraft, depictions of, of Wicca in horror films like that. Oh, Joshua Lee, Mono's Hands of Fate was fucking better than this by leaps and bounds. Oh, yeah. I've seen Mono's at least 10, 10 times. Probably I'll take 10 hours of Torgo over this bullshit. <laughs> just Torgo, just, just Torgo dancing on a screen for 10 hours. Uh, wobbly knees. I'll fucking take it all day long and watch this bullshit. At least that has entertainment value. But I want to ask the audience, what do you think has been the best witchcraft horror film? Not witchcraft of the franchise, but the best depiction of witchcraft in a horror film, or the use of witchcraft or Wicca in a horror film. The best depiction. Sometimes they sway off and they misrepresent it for the sake of horror tropes, but sometimes they depict it very, very well. What do you think has been the best depiction of Wicca or witchcraft in a horror film? Let us know down in the comments below or, of course, at weekinhorror.gmail.com. Give us some context there if you wanted to talk about specific things. Uh, we'd love to hear about it, so definitely let us know. Hey, Microraptor, good to see you. Thanks for hanging out with us. All right. So it's about that day. It is that time. Because uh, we ran long, because I know we were trying to avoid talking about that piece of shit. But uh, yep. it is. What time is it, Eugene? It is trivia time. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's getting old yet. So <laughs> it's trivia time. So as usual, and we've got the live chat pulled up. And I want to make sure I got it. Yep. All messages. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So as usual, the first person in the live chat to get the correct answer to this uh, trivia question will win a mystery item from the Week in Horror store. Something very, very cool we have in our, uh, uh, you know, the things that we've amassed. Go and check it out. It's over at Teespring. Link is in the description below. Go and check out the stuff we have there. We have cool things. We have drinkware. We have hoodies. We have stickers. We have all kinds of cool stuff there. So uh, first person to get the correct answer to this in the live chat wins something from the store. Take it away, Eugene. Uh, get those Google fingers ready. Here all right. The question is, what legendary horror director was originally intended to direct tourist trap what legendary horror director was originally intended to direct tourist trap the first one to answer in the chat below will win something from the win a mystery prize from the weekend horror store i wonder how long it's gonna take him to get this one this one actually might be a little tough let's so see no sarcasm, it's not Julianne Moore. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. Holy shit. That was fast. <laughs> we got it, it. Yes, it was Tony Regime. Tony Regime. Well, well done. Tony, it was John Carpenter. The film was originally intended to be directed by John Carpenter. Unfortunately, they could not come to monetary terms with Carpenter. So... He went on to do other stuff, but uh, but yeah, originally this film was set to be directed by John Carpenter. And if you think about that, John Carpenter directing this movie, that would have been fucking crazy. That would have been yeah. Oh, that I'm just imagining what could have been because this was this was pre the thing. So like like post Halloween, pre the thing. I think this would this would have been really really oh, really yeah. interesting. So, but yep, you are correct. It was John Carpenter was originally intended to uh, direct Tourist Trap, uh, but when uh, they couldn't come to financial terms, David is the one who took it over. So, excellent. Well done, Tony Regime. Let me get your name down. And we will get you 
a mystery item, a special item from the Weekend Horror Store. Thank you so much. Amazing. All right. So that, I think that's going to do it. That's, that's going to do it. And we're a little bit over time. So that's going to close out another episode of the Weekend Horror Podcast. Thank you all so much. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, smash that like and subscribe button. And be sure to hit that bell so you never miss a future episode. Join us next week when we look back at the Apocalyptic Trilogy conclusion, Omen 3, The Final Conflict, the brutal and gory sequel, The Hills Have Eyes 2, the psychological revenge horror Anguish with Zelda Rubenstein, fucking A, and the found footage abduction horror Happy Camp. Be sure to check out Joshua Olson's store at badsamurai.store. He does all the awesome artwork you see splattered all over our merch whenever you uh, uh, go over to Teespring. For more from Weekend Horror, check out all of the bloody links that are down in the description below. Follow us on the socials for the Daily Splatter, your daily horror recommendation. Join our Discord for watch parties, big announcements, and all kinds of horror shenanigans. We have cool stuff coming up from productions that are currently getting set up. But for all that behind-the-scenes stuff, check out the links we have below. Our Patreon, our Discord, all of that will be available to all the followers of the show. So be sure to look for that in the future. Join the higher tiers of our Patreon for early content access, behind-the-scenes fun with us, and, of course, support. You can support us there for as little as a dollar a month. But if, if you don't dig Patreon, check out our PayPal link. You can help us th- out that way as well. What are you waiting for? Join us. Be a part of the action. And as always, thank you, everyone, for being the greatest audience that a horror film podcast could possibly have. I am JL. And I'm Eugene. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared. Ha, 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 ha.